We'll go ahead and get started here. Um, hello, everybody. Welcome to Collecting Rarities. I'm Rainer. I'm Seth. And Mr. Odellini, if you care to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Marty Odellini. Seth and Rainer invited me today to talk about my area of, of hobbies and collectibles, which is model railroading. Nice. Nice, and uh, you are a wealth of information, so I'm sure we're gonna we're gonna have a great show here. But before, I'm excited. <laughs> but before every show, we have to do our little sponsor. So we want to thank Watto Scrapyard. What a guy! He does amazing work for any of your one six or black series custom needs. He, I have several pieces in his of his work in my uh, collection alone, and it is just phenomenal. Nothing, nothing but good things to say about the guy. So. For sure, he's been knocking it out of the park. He keeps pumping out things like nonstop. I don't know how he keeps up with it, but holy crap! He comes up with a new <laughs> head every day. It's ridiculous. It is. I don't know how how he has so much time on his hands, but man, he must be working on like a twenty-six hour day. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Oh my gosh! All right. So before we get into the basics here, Marty, uh, you want to tell us what got you into model railroading? I think you'll find that most of the people who collect trains like I do got started when they were younger. And I have to tell you, uh, when I was starting in this area, we didn't have the wooden trains that many of you remember from your youth, you know, the Thomas uh, trains or the real trains. Those really are toy toys, but uh, many of us got more into this when we got to be a little older. Okay. I'm thinking like 12, 14. Uh -huh. And we get into the hands-on electric trains. So one of the key things there is that in this hobby, you can collect for quality, you can collect for rarity, you can collect for value, but most of the people actually do things with it. They, they think of operating. And if you see the things that I'm talking about, what do you want to collect for? Do you want to collect to try and build a cross section of like a time frame that major companies were making a certain kind of product? Uh, are you trying to do a genre or are you trying to capture everything? Uh, if you think of, of our model trains, they reflect real railroads that existed any time in the last 150 years. Some people try to capture everything that was ever produced, like for the nickel plate roll in the middle of the country or the New York Central in the Far East, you know, when it was operating. So there's people who try to collect for genres and eras. Other people like me, I, I'm one of the few people I know who collect a little bit of everything or yeah, a lot of there, everything, depending. <laughs> there is a lot out there. It is a whole entire world. So I guess uh, let's get started with the basics here. Like what what makes model railroading? What's the differences between all the all the trains? I'll be showing a, a nice chart and a couple charts on the next page. But one of the key things is you have to think about your space. And uh, I, I'm looking at Seth's wall behind him. Uh, when we have a little bit of time at the end of my presentation, we'll walk over and I'll show you a, a wall that I have. I have a couple cabinets in the front room of my house that are like large curio cabinets that are set aside for my best pieces. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, I think a lot of us put maybe 10 or 15% of our collection on display. And then we have, <laughs> we each have our own warehouse pretty much. It's an obsession <laughs> to be honest. I, I can imagine it's something that takes up quite a bit of space if you really get into it. What's up, Danny Lee? Just want to give our shout out to our comments there. What's going on? No, that's great. Some some people will say consume the entire basement of their house. Uh, I did something a little different because we did some remodeling, and where we live, we're kind of halfway between the north and the south in Maryland. So we have smaller basements. They're there, but they're not as big as the ones in the Midwest. So. I actually built a separate building. I was initially going to do like a pole barn type building, just a simple construction. And it ended up being a year round heated and cooled building. It has a, a, a restroom in it. It's got a little kitchenette in there and it actually is okay for visitors and serves our swimming pool. But uh, I have about a 700 foot display area on the first floor. And then about an equal amount of space in a storage attic, which is really a warehouse uh, of collecting. I I have seen both of those in person, and they are impressive, let me tell you. <laughs> that sounds like it. One of the things that comes comes up then is, you know, if you had a limited space, let's say you're living in an apartment, or if you're uh, traveling a lot, some people will choose to use a different scale. You guys know with your figurines, you can go everywhere from what, uh, 
you know, one to six or one to 12, and you can go down to uh, much higher ratios. It's the same thing with trains, and I'll show you in a few minutes. But mm -hmm. some of our outdoor garden trains can be two to three feet long for the engines. And if you run uh, sort of a standard train with 10 or 15 cars, it can be 40 feet long. So we're talking about Ooh. tremendous amounts of space. Yeah. On the other on the other hand, uh, sometimes if you go into shows or maybe to malls and that when they have displays, some of the smaller ratios, and N ratio is 1 to 148, and you can build an empire in a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood. And you can have trains that are really fairly accurate that might have 40 or 50 ore cars moving at scale speed around the track. And you can do that in a portion of a spare room, a little bit bigger than a desk. So what is, what is scale speed? You you mentioned that. Like, what, what does that entail? That's kind of interesting because if you ever see uh, little kids run an electric train, and uh, I have some simple setups that I'll let smaller children run, uh, I keep some certain models out there that uh, are a little bit more, uh, how would you say, uh, hardy. And also, uh, I don't worry too much if they scratch an accidentally or so. They will run them full speed. And scale speed, that would be like 120 miles an hour. Now, mm. in the United States, you know, real trains don't go that fast. Oh, of course uh, not. Mm -hmm. Bullet trains, the maglev trains in Europe and Japan and Italy and that, some of those trains will go that fast. But that's really unusual. And even our best subways will go 60 or 70 miles an hour. But scale speed for freight trains and that is usually about 40 miles an hour or so. Okay. So when you see that in real operation, it's fairly, it, I wouldn't say it looks boring, but it's realistic and it's a little different. You'll see people have small scale trains winding through mountains and it may take them 20 minutes to go from one end of their layout to the other. So wow, that's kind that's, of interesting. That's pretty massive so, layout. Yeah. That's, that's all about accuracy. Now, one, th <laughs> one of the other things then that comes up uh, is that surprisingly, the money investment is sort of similar across most of the scales. So if you wanted to collect the garden drains, you might spend four or $500 on a, a nice locomotive. Okay. And if you have a very high-end HO train, which is what a lot of you are familiar with, that's about 1 to 87 ratio, it may be one-fifth the size, but you're going to spend $400 on it. It'll have more advanced electronics. It'll have better details. So in a way, the price doesn't shift across the different scales. It's sort of interesting. So one thing I've always been curious about, you mentioned the different gauges being different sizes and stuff like that. Uh, I've seen some of those little smaller trains. Like how, how, do, how does the mechanics of the engine like differ between the sizes? Uh, they're actually fairly similar. They tend to be five-pole engines that have multiple sets of brushes. And the modern engines are very nice. Uh, they're, they're sort of sealed, so you don't have to periodically do a lot of lubrication. I mean, every few years, you might put a, a dot of like a, like a like like one of the modern Teflon paste in there, but very little of that is required. Okay. So uh, they're, they're relatively maintenance-free. The larger ones that I tend to have in, in my collection, the very big ones, come from Germany, and the Germans really know how to do mechanics. They're, oh, they're master engineers. Oh, yeah, Germans they've, are precise. <laughs> they, they've also gotten into a much higher quality of like injection plastic molding. So the detail on their models is, is just really nice. But but they're also sort of have a sense of fun and toyness to them. So, so I'll show that in a few minutes in some of the photos. Okay. Uh, I wanted to mention that uh, track gauge is different than scale. Okay. And this has to do with the real world, too. You know, the uh, typical trains you'll see all around the U.S., they're about four feet, eight inches across from rail to rail. Mm -hmm. That's how it's measured. And that's what we call our standard gauge. But some of you, have you ever gone in the mountains of like California or Colorado where they have what they call narrow gauge? Yes, I've seen those. Yeah, and that's where the track is roughly half as wide, but the cars and the equipment is nearly as heavy as the big big ones. And that's okay. particularly where there's mining operations and logging operations 50, 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. They had a hard time carving the rail bed out of the side of the mountain. So the tracks were narrower but they still had fairly heavy equipment, a little bit more dangerous. They came off the rails a little more often. But yeah, it makes was, for really cool modeling. I was about to say, you know, narrower railroads, you would think they would topple over a little bit more. They would, although a lot of them were pretty low to the ground, and they're 
filled with heavy products like ore or they're filled with wood so wood logs load, and basically stuff. yeah yeah and they go slow they're not going to go fast with a load like that we can go to the next slide and i'll talk a little more about some of the specific details Roger. let me get that there we go so one of the oh uh, wait, i'm sorry i skipped one <laughs> sure so, one of the big organizations nationally is called tca train collectors of america Okay. And they set a lot of the standards. There's actually uh, another group called the NMRA, National Model Railroader Association, that sets a lot of these things. On the, on the right side of this chart, you'll see scale, ratio, engage with. So th these are the common titles that are given to those. G, or the outdoor garden trains, tend to be about 120 to 1 to 29. And those are fairly substantial models. I've got one right here that I'll let you see in my box. But if you look here, this is big. Wow. Oh, this yeah. is hands that on. Is <laughs> that is almost two feet long. That's very impressive. You know, and if you like big, heavy stuff, you put that in your yard and you use crushed rock like you would under a patio. Yeah. And you set it up like ballast. And this is fairly realistic. And then the folks who do that do a lot of gardening, too. They like to have small plants. Mm -hmm. If they're in the south or the west, if they're in Texas or if they're in California, which are big places for outdoor railroads, they'll often have succulents and cactuses and that, and it's very cool. Wow. And yeah. uh, sometimes that brings other family members in. Uh, spouses, children will often like to do the gardening. So that's pretty neat. Yeah, I've the definitely seen gauge. your – oh, sorry. I was, I was going to say I've definitely seen your outdoor setup too. It's, it's it, it lives credence what you're saying. It's very impressive, and it's very – very cool, nice way to decorate your house. It's a lot of fun when you have that. Uh, the uh, standard gauge now, that's the oldest trait. Going back okay. 120 years ago, the fellow who's pretty well known in America was named Joshua Cowden Lionel. Okay. And uh, he actually is the founder of Lionel Trains going back to about 1902. And uh, uh, Joshua basically was actually making model trains because he was an electrician. He was making flashlights and things for the government and that, but uh, uh, decided to put batteries on a little car that went around on the track, and suddenly everybody wanted that. So he shifted fairly quickly and so uh, uh, became part of uh, uh, a new business where there was about four companies 120 years ago. They called it standard gauge because everything was made out of metal. Sure. The uh, bodies of the trains were cast metal, uh, sort of a crude casting they did back then, like in sand molds. And then the uh, actual uh, train cars were made out of folded metal. And it's called tin plate. Yeah, I know and metal if you run was into like that, plastic back then, right? It was. And, and I have to say, those trains usually have worth. If you find them, even if they're very old, they will be worth something because they were made largely from just before the First World War up to before the Second World War. Dang. So there was a period. Yeah. People call mm -hmm. it pre-war. Pre-war is the term or tin plate. And that's that stuff is uh, rare and to have it in good quality is, is pretty neat. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's a company called MTH that's based in Maryland. They're actually going out of business just because the owner got older. He's in his late 60s and he's closing it down this year and he's selling it off in pieces. But they made reproductions of those that are beautiful. And I have a whole wall full of those because I'll show you them when I, when I finish up, we'll walk over there and we'll run them on, on my layout, but they're very nice. They're, they're noisy. They make a lot of smoke. They have a lot of lights. They, uh, they sound like something busy is going on. They are more like toys than they are like scale models. But on the other hand, they're fun. They're a yeah. lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've definitely seen those trains that you can put the smoke in and have it, you know, come out and, you know, go around the track and you can sound the engine and the horn and everything. It that 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 must be amusing as a kid. <laughs> so the one that you're thinking of, it's probably the most common, and I'm gonna hold this up here again now. You can see this is sort of medium size. Okay. Uh, this is the O gauge or O twenty seven. Okay. And this is the classic Lionel train from the nineteen fifties. And that's when they started using plastic in larger amounts. And uh, these are basically roughly about one to 48 scale. And this is what they sold from about 1945 to about 1965 exclusively almost. And they sold tens of millions of sets of these. And this is what you'll see. <laughs> yeah, you'll see people have basements full of these. 
Now, the collector value for these is kind of interesting. Some of it is quality. They have to be meant pretty much to be worth something. Uh-huh. And the original packaging is important. You guys know that from all, all your collectibles. Original packaging is very helpful. The other thing is because they kept changing the production lines every few years, they would have something in production and they might make 5,000 units and there might only be a couple hundred known now. So things that are scarce, so scarcity comes in. Oh, of course. And these have values for, for things that were either a prototype or they were limited run or they weren't in one of the major catalogs. They call them uncataloged. They're sort of an oddity. Then people often do research and try and find out when they were made and why they were made. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. That's that's a real subset of collectors. So they'll look for odd colors or something that's not the standard one. Mm -hmm. So something that's a little different. And I know that that's in the world of uh, of miniature figurines and action uh, action figures and that that there's pre-runs, you know, where maybe they made 50 of something and then they decided to make something that was safer or different and maybe oh, didn't yeah. have removable parts. The, the same thing with all the all the action trains. Now, let me, let me ask you this. You mentioned all that, but what about misprint trains? Like, is there any kind of market or any kind of thing for that? Like, you know, there's misprint action figures. There's... There, there's some of those. And what they usually are is when they'll find out that something was done incorrectly for a year. For example, I, I should have brought that out of my stores. I have a train that was made in 1976. It's called the Spirit of 76. Okay. And it's a standard diesel. I think it's an SD40, which was the, the major uh, general electric diesels that they were manufacturing at that time. They painted a couple of them for the bicentennial of the country. The one I have has a decal on it that has the presidential seal of the United States. Mm-hmm. And it's very accurate, and it's dead center. And it turns out that that wasn't legal. <laughs> that the company that made them is called Tyco, and these were trains that sold for twenty-five or twenty-eight dollars, but they only made them like that for a few months because they were told by the government that they couldn't use the official seal of the president. So yeah. what they did was they changed the seal to make it not an actual seal. It has sort of just a, a clear gold line around it, rather than a, a stamp that says the president of the United States. So I have one of the ones with the original decals, and it makes it worth a little bit more, you know, because yeah. it's uh, oh. it, it was sort of a uh, misrun, and there was only a few thousand there. Hmm. That's really now, let me point out, this is what they call HO gauge. And if you see, this is small, and it's much finer detail. Yeah, and you can see really there's detailed. rods carved in. There's working uh, tie rods on the side. There's the whole drive system is pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. And this is a fairly high quality model. It would be about $150 or so. And the reason I point that out is that's where the true scale modelers are. The hardcore okay. people who want everything to be right to scale within a few inches of the, the real prototype. And they want everything to be accurate in its dimensions. And they also want things like piping on the uh, engine to be what it looks like in real life. And so what they'll do is they'll get the original manufacturing prints for the locomotives that were made in, say, Ohio by the Baldwin Company in 1920, and they'll manufacture a miniature out of that. So there's a lot of... That's like... Yeah, that's crazy. Now, those folks are the ones who build the miniature empires, and they'll be very accurate. They'll say, okay, I'm modeling the Sioux line from uh, northern Michigan, and uh, that's near where I grew up, northern and southern Michigan, and they'll say, I'm modeling it in the era around 1960. So there may still be a few steam locomotives, and they'll know which ones were on the roster. They'll actually have the company records from the historic books, and they'll say, okay, I can only have these kind of diesels because the other one wasn't made till 1968. So they will be accurate historically within a year of what they're modeling. So they'll be very, very strict about that. Now, I and imagine the- that requires some very specific parts and very specific things to do. How would you go about getting those? It's surprising. There's huge libraries. You know, there's libraries of thousands of books that are not just for modelers, but they're the history of most of the major railroads. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of history buffs. Uh, they call them rail fans. Mm-hmm. People go out and take pictures in museums or they look for uh, things that are being restored. And so there's a lot of historical research that goes on into trying to uh, to be as accurate as you can with your, your model layout or your miniature city. 
Mm -hmm. So if you got into something like that and you, you kind of have it nailed down to a certain point in history and then you maybe found that something was wrong or you might have done it incorrectly, would you go back and redo it to make it? Lots of people will do that. They'll say uh, they'll trade away some locomotives they have because they'll say, well, that's not particular to the time I'm modeling. Okay. And so uh, these are, like I said, the, the interesting thing is there's people like me who collect things because they're great toys. Uh -huh. And then there's people who collect things because it has to be accurate. It has to be like details. So, you know, it's like, for example, if you had somebody who was collecting uh, British soldiers for the uh, Battle of Waterloo, mm -hmm. they're going to say, you know, which units were there and what kind of uniform they wore. And it has to be accurate. And, you yeah. know, the amounts have to the numbers have to be right. It's very that's, similar. Uh, so that's like a whole other layer entirely. Yeah. <laughs> So we do have so, a uh, we do have a question here. Uh, so do these guys have groups like we do for figures? So that's coming from Watto himself. They do. So uh, I think one of the things I was going to point out is that uh, these are some magazine. There's a lot of model railroad magazines. There's about twenty major ones. The one uh -huh. that's generic that's for everybody is called Model Railroad. It's okay. been in production for about uh, just under a hundred years. They had their seventy fifth anniversary a few years ago. And uh, that one covers most of the gauges you see there. But I tend to follow this one, which is classic toy trains. This okay. focuses on the Lionel trains through the uh, 20s to the 60s. And it also has a lot of what I talk about, the tin play trains. There's Mark's trains, which are uh, a different kind of metal lithographic train. And then the people who do the outdoor trains, uh, I get this magazine too, Garden <laughs> Railways. Well, there's a magazine so, for everything. <laughs> there is. Well, there's one for O-scale modeling. There's one for N-scale modeling. So there's a lot of subsets. But uh, as I mentioned, uh, there's a lot of readers' forums in here where people ask about the accuracy of a certain kind of new piece of equipment. And it's gotten so that the uh, major equipment manufacturers can't just make things that look ballpark like they're supposed to be, they, that, that the modelers will go in and they'll look at the dimensions. You know, let me point out one example. The very big train I'm showing you here. This is made by a company called Aristocraft, and okay. they unfortunately are out of business now. Mm -hmm. This locomotive is actually about 21 inches long. And the reason I point that out is that the prototype is called an F3, a Fairbanks Morris. It's one of the first diesels that were made in the late 40s and 50s. The prototype was 50 and a half feet long. And if you multiply that by inches, it comes up to about 610 inches. If you divide that by 29, because they're 1 to 29 scale, comes up to 21 inches. And they're almost within inches on all their details. So they were very proud of doing that. Now, they made 20 different types of these. They had them for almost all the lines because something like 6,000 locomotives were made for over 20 different companies back then. So there's so a lot we... of flexibility. So we do have another couple of questions. Uh, Watto asks sure. if they've gotten into the 3D printing to get what they need. And uh, Dean asks, what is the market like? Is there a market for modern trains? There is. It's sort of interesting. Let me answer them separately. 3D printing is pretty big now because some people are actually building their own equipment. For example, uh, it used to be pretty hard to make like uh, a car or por portions of a locomotive, you'd either have to roll metal in, in a tiny sort of like workshop, you'd have to have a, a metal lathe, you might have to have a stamping machine, you'd have to be pretty good at uh, doing soldering or brazing, and okay. uh, you had to be a really master modeler. Now what you can do is you can take another model and adapt the uh, measurements and put them into a 3D printer and you can make big portions of the equipment and then certain companies will sell you the fine details like the bells and the tubes and the uh, lamps and that that you can fix on there so almost every month there's an article in these magazines that talks about using 3d printers to make relatively rare prototype parts all right you hear that's that, been Wado? a big plus you hear that Wado? you're not going to be sleeping anytime soon <laughs> <laughs> The other thing that's kind of common is, I don't know if you guys uh, have many people working in your field in laser, laser cutting, laser manufacturing, but there's a lot of fine laser etching and cutting of particularly very small wood parts for some of the buildings and such when people are building prototypes. Mm. So right. it's, like I said, there's complementary things that are pretty neat. Now the yeah. market for modern trains 
there are people who mo model trains as they are today. And in the U.S., there's only about eight big train lines. Probably the biggest one is Burlington Northern Santa Fe. And these are sort of, uh, you, you've seen them. They're green and orange, and they're in the western half of the U.S. Most trains now do what we call intermodal. You know how we get all those container ships from China that come into, like, uh, Los Angeles, or they come into Seattle or San Francisco? They even come into Baltimore, and they come on the East Coast. They unload giant 60-foot or 80-foot-long steel, steel, basically steel containers that are lifted by mega cranes, and then they're dropped onto railroads. And the railroads will have a very deep, empty flat car that actually even goes lower than the wheels, and they can stack two of them and bolt them into place, and then they'll put a couple hundred of them on a, on a train, and then that train will head off across the U.S., and it'll go to Las Vegas, and there's a huge yard there that'll sort it so that some of the, maybe half the train will go up to Chicago, the other half will go down to Florida. There's distribution centers all across the U.S. Oh, and people man. model that, but uh, I have to tell you, there's less fun in that because there's less variability. Mm -hmm. oh, you know, I mean, a train with 80 cars that has 160 of these steel containers, it's kind of cool, but it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's different in that uh, they're kind of modeling more for efficiency and running. There's a whole group of modelers that run real operations. And what they'll do is they will have four or five guys, usually it's almost always men, running a layout, and they will have somebody who, say, is at the port. And they're setting up these trains with those containers on them. And they'll send off a train with 40 cars to the next person. And that person has so much time to sort that train and send 10 cars north, 16 cars east, the remaining cars south, and they'll break them up. And they will have an actual computerized program that they have to follow within a few minutes. And that's like real life. So in real and life, so you know, they, they, they compress the train time scale. So they might run for four hours and it'll be like a two-day period where they're moving trains across the United States. Now, are there any people who do like dioramas of the sorting centers or is that kind of like a non-deal? Oh, everything's in there. There's some people who only do dioramas. They don't do any operations. They just build ultra-accurate scale models. And if you just want to check that sort of thing out, I would say of these three magazines, the one called Model Railroader, it's only about $8. And you can flip through it and it's got a lot of that in there. The other thing is, you know, like like all of our hobbies, YouTube and just getting on the net, you'll find a lot of the sites. I have some listed on the last slide. So, Let me mention something else. Uh, I've go got a train it. quality rating here. Uh, for people who are selling things on online auctions, eBay is probably the biggest, but you are sort of honor bound to do an assessment of the, the, the quality of how new or, or how pristine your product is. Okay. And so I tend to only look for C10 through C8, which is either brand new or factory new, meaning that it might have been test run, or like new, meaning that everything is there and uh, there's almost no wear and tear. Okay, so basically just mint, basically, almost. Yeah, that's mint. Now, some people collect mint so that they just leave it sealed in the box and they're kind of saving it to possibly uh, swap with someone else. You guys know the joke, don't you? Where you buy oh, yeah. three of everything. Yeah. <laughs> One is to, to use and display yourself. One is to save for a swap, you know, and one is the one that you hide from your, uh, you know, the rest of your family just so they don't know that you have a spare, you know. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> but, but I, I think one of the other things, though, is some people who don't have as much money and they may have more time and more skill will look then on the lower end and they'll look to restore things. Nice. That's a whole different mm -hmm. game is to try and restore them to their original color and they'll pound out dents. They'll actually do miniature sandblasting to remove rust, or they may wow. use like a chemical treatment to remove excessive paint, and they'll start from scratch again, and they'll rebuild something up from the ground up. Wow. Wow. I mean, I, I guess I never would have guessed that, you know, I know a lot of people that are into cars and rebuilding cars, but I would never would have guessed like rebuilding miniature trains. That's, I mean, a whole level of detail that, you know... Wow, that's that's a lot. If I can interject here for a moment. Watto says you guys nailed it with this guest. Great topic. Yeah, you 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 are truly a wealth of information, Mr. Marty. <laughs> Thanks. Let me show a couple more pictures here. We'll go on through here. Oh yeah, here's uh, okay. Here's a... So th that's a little compressed there, but as I'm pointing out, you see the smallest. This one mm -hmm. here now. Look at that. 
that is Z gauge. That's Z one gauge. to two twenty. One to two twenty. That is you tiny. can't really do. You can't do much in the way of building here, but you can run a layout in a coffee table. And this is for people with some money, to be honest. Uh, the starter sets run about five hundred dollars for a locomotive and four cars and You're a few switches. And track. No, and uh, it's almost jeweler scale. It's actually hard to put on the track. Really? So it's uh, it's one. I've got a few pieces of it, and one of the reasons I got it is a uh, a friend of mine had a uh, a train store that was part of a big uh, uh, like an outdoor uh, garden center, and his property became worth so much he had to sell it. Mm-hmm. for development and he sold out all his stock at like 70 percent off or so and i i bought about a quarter of it i never explained that to my wife entirely but uh, <laughs> I, uh oops but the thing that's kind of funny is if you compare these two look at the size of that and the size oh of that i mean this gosh. is all in the same hobby and it's wow. just it's pretty remarkable yeah, that, but, that but it's kind of cool. That is insane. Now, uh, what I was pointing out for those of you who think that you, let's say you go to a swap meet or you go to a, you know, a, a giant uh, kind of like series of uh, garage uh, sales or so, and you see something on the way of trains and you say, gosh, I wonder if I should take the chance because I don't know much about them. Oh, over on the side here, I'm showing you the different tracks there. I'm showing you the uh, the brass track. That's for this very large train. You see it on the right, second from the top. Mm-hmm. The one above that is for those metal trains from the 1930s. The third track down is the Lionel trains of the 50s and 60s, which there's a lot of. The next one is the HO train. It's a two-rail train. The next one is N, which is actually uh, about a 1 to 150 scale. And that usually has a built-in plastic roadbed. And then the bottom one is Z, which is uh, 1 to 220. But let's go to the next slide. I have some hints because I think some of your people might have find this interesting. Okay. Anything that you find that's before 1940 probably has value. And then you look to see how beat up it is. Like I said, almost none of these have their original boxes. Oh, yeah. They've been around for 80 years. Yeah. If they have the original paint, the original paint's in pretty good shape then they're probably worth at least a few hundred dollars or more, the locomotives and the cars. There's a guy who's up in Pennsylvania, a fellow named Morgan Predneville, and he sells sets that are near mint for thirteen dollars to $18,000 for a locomotive and four cars. <laughs> so that's the very high end of the hobby. Wow. But I have to tell you, the stuff that... Uh, is on this track here that I'm showing. That's HO. It's brass. It's two rail. They built 100 million pieces of that in the 60s and 70s. And as I mentioned, this is a higher end model. It was made a little bit better quality. And the very best ones are made out of cast and machine brass. And are worth several hundred dollars. But most of what you're going to see is plastic stuff made by a company called Bachman or Tyco. And lifelike, and it's going to have no value. No value. It's toys. Yeah. So anything plastic, avoid. Well, for for the HO, like I said, most HO and most of the Lionel trains in the 50s and 60s are too beat up to have value. Okay. They have parts value. So uh, I see people all the time. And, in fact, I was in a store looking for something that was a little bit obscure. I was trying to get a particular locomotive to kind of fill out a line that I had. And. While I was in there, there was a young guy who came in with his family's trains from the 50s. Mm-hmm. And he thought they were worth a lot. He had them in a cardboard box. They were kind of wrapped in paper towels. And he showed them to the guy. And the guy said, I don't buy these. He says, I have a whole wall of boxes of these. And most of it has no value. So I can't give it away. And one of the reasons is uh, when those had value because they were scarcer, or at least the high quality ones were scarcer, about the middle of the 1980s, a couple of the companies got resurrected. Uh, Lionel Trains had been nearly out of business. They were making cheap trains in Mexico. And there was a billionaire, a fellow named Richard Kuhn from the Detroit area, who started them back on the track of making very high-quality models. Okay. And he got some of their old dyes out of storage from the 1930s and 40s, and he made some new ones. And he started selling train sets that cost $1,000 but were beautiful. 
And so, wow. you know, all of those kind of replaced the ones that were beat up from the 50s. Okay. So if you can get something that's pristine, and then you add modern electronics that has sound and has acceleration and deceleration and all kinds of LED lighting and that, if you put that in a small package, then everything that you're talking about from the 50s becomes kind of obsolete. And if it's not mint or if it's not scarce or rare run or something that was like a mistake in colors or something, it doesn't have much value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it just becomes obsolete, like you said. And then some of it has values like this big one that I've been holding up. Values just because of the sheer amount and the equipment in it. This has dual motors and uh, it really is smooth. This is very modern. It's got its own sound system. It's got a computer receiver in there so you can do digital control for it. It's about a $500 engine. And it will probably never be worth less because it has an intrinsic value. It's like you mentioned, uh, a nice car. You know, if you went out and bought one of the new chargers now, the 560 horse ones, what do they call them? The ones that spit fire, you know? Uh, <laughs> you know, there's there, there's one that's uh, that, that's supercharged, you know, and uh, it's got like a, a huge, uh, huge, you know, uh, you know, uh, V8 engine in it. Yeah, the Hellcat motor in it. The Hellcat, yeah. That's not going to lose value. Yeah. You know, I mean, you might pay 70000 and maybe it'll be worth 55000 then it'll be worth eighty thousand, but it's going to hover in that area or go up. Yeah. So when you when you buy for quality, it's not going to fall down, you know. Yeah. I mentioned the realism on the right side here, just because uh, I think Rainer and a few of the others that sent me messages asking about making the miniature world. So there was an older way that people would lay out, uh, you know, folded cardboard and kind of staple it in place and put paper mache over it. Now what most people do is they get foam from insulation and they cut it with an electric wire. Mm-hmm. There's some really elegant tools, and I have a set of those tools. And then you kind of build a sculpted model in a matter of minutes, and then you put like a fine coating of plaster over that, and it's very cool. Nice. So I see. We, uh, we do have a question here. Yeah, from the future. Yeah, <laughs> you read it already. <laughs> yeah, I would say you know. It's it's a dicey question because one of the things that happens is I'm a little bit older than you guys, uh, a bit older, and most of the train collectors are older. Uh, it's possible there may be a glut on the market as my generation gets too old to, to keep toys. People move into assisted living and such, and they have to sell a lot of what they collect. I don't know if it's going to grow again. It's, it's been cyclic. Trains were really big in the 30s mm-hmm. and the 50s kind of dwindled in the 60s and 70s, got big in the 80s and 90s, and then it's kind not, of uh, gone down a little like, bit recently. It's kind of like model kits, you know? A lot of the old professional model builders are starting to starting to move on, and, you know, they're, mm-hmm. uh, it, there's not enough uh, enthusiasm uh, among younger people to really get into that, and they don't have the patience for it. On the other hand, some of this is shifting just to older years. You know, when people work really hard for 35 years... They get to their 60s and they have a little bit of resources. They got some extra money. They have time. So I think what's going to happen uh, to invest in, I would only invest in what you like, what you could use for your family. If you got a starter set for Christmas time and you got like a tin plate set, it might be $600, but it's beautiful and it may go up in value. But I think if you're going to invest for value or for things getting to be worth more over time, you know, it's a funny twist because if you don't know a field, you're not going to buy smart. Mm-hmm. And I bought things that I like. And also when I had a hint that a company's going out of business, I've had a surge in purchasing. I mentioned the one company that's going to stop making the tin plate trains. Uh, they pretty much mm-hmm. stopped, Mike's Train House. I have, you know, maybe uh, $40,000 worth of their trains or so just because I'm a bit of a hoarder. But, you know, that means years from now I can trade them to other people mm-hmm. or sell them and buy something of equal value. That's one of the reasons I tell my wife I need to have a big warehouse full of things. Yeah, you're <laughs> enriching your estate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's going on, Eddie Mendez? Thanks for joining in. So uh, I don't know if there's any more slides there, uh, Rainer. Is yeah, there another me, one uh, afterwards? One second here. Uh, we have True Realist here. If you want to yeah, we talked one. about that. 
like I said, those are the folks who really wanted to nail things. So this was just some resources, you know. Uh, if you look at eBay, you guys have this in your fields, I'm sure, that people will post things for ridiculous prices and they'll never sell them. Yeah, of course. You know, yeah. and you, you'll, you'll scratch your head and you'll say, he's asking $2,100 for that? I mean, uh, the last one I bought, I bought for 600 and it might be worth 700 But, you know, you look for what things sell for. So you put it on your watch list and you'll say, you know, I wonder if that one sold, you know. But I have to tell you, at the very high end, people are unrealistic. And I think they're not really looking at the market. So well, it's like the same thing with high-end comics. You know, just you know, a Batman that's worth millions. It's not going to sell quick, yeah. <laughs> if at all. Now, it's interesting. You know, the one fellow I mentioned, uh, Richard Kuhn, who bought Lionel in the 1980s. He kept mm -hmm. it for about 10 years, and he made it more of a specialized, high, high-quality company again. Mm -hmm. And he actually sold it to a consortium that was led partly by Neil Young, the rock star. Oh, really? Huh. And they added a lot of sound units to it because sound was getting really high quality for digital sound production. So they added, like, uh, voices and, you know, realistic sounds for the uh, the trains, like, pulling into a yard and somebody calling to them to slow down and that sort of thing. So they did all of that, and he just passed away about a year ago, and they were selling his collection. Okay. Now, his collection, he had one of a kind. He had like the only known, you know, Brown State set from 1933. He had things that wow. were worth, you know, tens of millions. Uh, well, not tens of millions, tens of thousands of dollars. But he also collected cars. He collected full-size trolleys. He had a warehouse in the east side of Detroit that uh, he had literally, uh, I think, about $100 million of uh, historic equipment in there. You know? So he was a little bit uh, – he, he had a really – empty check i mean he had an empty check checkbook yeah. because he really was worth <laughs> worth about a billion dollars uh, lots of expendable oh, income wow. at that point <laughs> uh, i think we have a, we could see if my uh, signal will hold up if i can show you the uh train collection in the other small building if you want to give it a shot yeah let's do that we're uh we're gonna warn everybody that we may lose our uh we may lose marty here we were having some connection troubles because he was originally going to do his podcast in that room but we have network issues so let's see if this works so i'll be, I'll be walking here i've got a uh big router right at one end of my house here which usually works out there and i've actually been able to do zoom meetings for work from there but um, uh, I think we're also streaming. Can you got me still? Yep, I got you. Yeah, we are streaming to like three sites, so that may be what's causing it. Yeah, and I've got the lighting in here much better. Okay. How does this look? Welcome to the man cave. Yeah, it looks pretty good so far. It is quite a man cave. So there are some of the things I have. I have uh, set foot in that people, room. <laughs> this is more of a toy layout. And the reason I say that is that it's a lot of four by eight platforms with bridging sections and they're covered with indoor outdoor carpet. And the reason wow. is, is I change it around every so often. Uh -huh. And you can see uh, it is more it's more for fun. These are like Department 56 type buildings where wow. the people collect the miniature houses. A lot of these are the ones that you get at Michael's. And then my son's got some high end Lego in the back there. <laughs> and so... Uh, you know, I've got, uh, and then <laughs> almost all of us, I took a few of these things down that I've been showing you. We have a wall of trains. Do you see that? Uh -huh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's wow. gorgeous. Now, that's about 10% of my collection. Yep. But uh, it is, uh, some of these are fairly impressive, like that one right here, the, the blue engine that uh, I'm showing you. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's called the uh, Commander. And that's the presidential series. And that is a locomotive that Lionel made in the 1930s. That's a reproduction by a company called Mike's Train House. That locomotive is about $1,600. And these cars are about $400 a piece. Wow. Jeez. But they're beautiful. They're beautiful. Yeah. They're brass and uh, they're pristine. And so that's just fun. That, this is all metal here. So these are all the tin plate reproductions. That's the wow. 400 engine that's done in John Deere. And that's just really fun. It's big and noisy, you know, run some things. Up here, those are the garden trains. These oh, are very gosh. German, very high-quality German. This is probably my most uh, elegant locomotive. You see the Southern up there? 
Yeah. I'm just mm-hmm. walking along it there. Oh, wow. That looks now that gorgeous. that is about three feet long. And those cars behind it are the standard set. That's about 20 feet long now. Wow. <laughs> That's an outdoor train. And then some of these just, uh, I, I tend to like the Great Northern. I like Rocky, which is the uh, uh, the Rocky Mountain goat. You see him there? Mm-hmm. The big horn sheep, I mean, it's not a goat. But this set here, this this is the law. Uh, LGB is the name of the German train company. And it stands for Lehman Grossebahn, or the Lehman Brothers uh, Big Train, basically, is what it means in German. And then down here is much smaller. That's the O27. It's a low profile. So I'm going to start this up right now and let these guys get going. I've got smaller controllers here. These are the controllers I usually have out for children because we didn't have too many visitors because of the COVID restrictions. But uh, see, now that's uh, synchronized sound. Do you hear it? Uh, We can barely hear it. Yeah, we hear the puff, puff, puff. Yeah. You see it now? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's synchronized smoking that's occurring as the train that goes. That is nice. Now, when I talked about scale speed, that's what I meant. You see, that's actually kind of a normal train speed. That would be about 20 to 30 miles an hour, and that's what it would do if it was coming through a neighborhood. Might go a little faster, but it wouldn't go much faster than that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that, that is impressive now. Uh, you... And then if I run an electric one here, I've got an electric going around the other side. Now, how do you work on the timing for those? I mean, especially with those massive layouts where you potentially have like four or five different trains going at any given time. Oh, these are all different dedicated loops. Okay. So I just have these on a simple, uh, just just loops powered with a couple leads. You see, they get big and noisy, and that's pretty fun when they start all working their way around. Mm-hmm. And then one of the other interesting things is this is a really childlike version, but there's a remote control that's handheld. And there are versions that are worth many hundreds of dollars where you can run multiple trains on the same track, but they have digital, digital chips in them. They have uh-huh. a, a board that's an electronic board. And each uh-huh. train has its own signal chip, so each one has its uh, basically has its own signal, and then you just have to make sure you don't crash it. Yeah, this you is just want to tank engine, really popular <laughs> for children. They love to run him. <laughs> yeah, you just want to make sure you check that chip periodically, make sure it doesn't malfunction. Otherwise, you may have a wreck on your hands. <laughs> so, anyways, I'm going to turn these off now and see if you guys have any questions for me. All right, we're opening the floor to any questions here. I know we only have a few people watching right now, but anybody? Uh... Here's some of the some of the tools. There's some of the uh, some of the decorative turfs and things. You can see there's a company called Woodland Scenics, which some of you might use for some of your scenes, you know. But uh, the Dremel tool is obviously a key one, nice. and then lots of fine screwdrivers and lots of uh, lots of tiny tiny drills and such for. For the fine scale modeling, that's what we do a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So I'm opening the floor to any questions. Going, uh, we give them, we give people a minute because there's a little bit of a delay, and they, of course they have to type. Um, but yeah, thank you for joining us, Mr. Marty. You have just been a wealth of information. We may have oh, to do yeah. a part two here because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot to cover. I know we didn't cover everything. I see. Eddie says that he has grandfather had a great grandfather said he wasn't allowed to touch. That's one of the things that I try to do is when kids are here, I have two different kinds of control boards. I have this really crude one here that's on an old cart that has the, uh, I wouldn't say throwaway transformers, but the inexpensive ones that come with the sets. Sure. Uh, and then I have a, a different one that's not set up right now that has the, uh, the uh, high amperage uh, and the very sort of like finest uh, transformers that's got two big, two big handles on it and they're called the Z4000s. They're about $450 each. And Ooh. I don't let kids use that one because I don't yeah. want them trying to force it too far. Yeah, yeah. yeah I imagine that would get them. wicked fast. <laughs> <laughs> I found that if you ever have kids visit, you let them play with something like they can play with Thomas from the outer loop. 
but they can't play with the other ones. Mm-hmm. They try to crash things in that, you know? And so I actually have, <laughs> I got a new Thomas recently because they wore one out. So Eddie oh, Mendez. I swapped the trains on the wall. Well, it's kind of interesting, Eddie. I actually have, as I mentioned these guys, I have some really nice pieces in a curio cabinet in my front room. And I hardly ever take these out. The ones on the wall I bring down and try to run at least once a year for each. It doesn't sound like very much, but, you know, if you have hundreds of pieces, yeah, one of the things that can happen is uh, things will get – if they sit on the shelf for a long time, sometimes you'll have to partially disassemble them just to clean everything. Mm, yeah, you know, the, you the running gears and The lubrication can kind of gum up over time. The good news is it usually doesn't, like, damage it. It just – is not as good. I was running something that I bought from a fellow. Uh, it's right here. See this? Uh, this is an all gauge metal train. It's very pretty. See that there? Uh, a little line of lines. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I got that plus four cars uh, for about four hundred dollars, and that was in production in about nineteen ninety five. But I had to do a lot of cleaning. I had to clean the wheels. I had to clean the contacts. I had to open it up, and I had to take all the lint off any of the brushes Ooh. on the motor and that. So some Imagine. of that requires, you know, uh, sort of a top-down uh, kind of a renovation. And I imagine that's really delicate work, too. It is. I'm not the best at it yet because I haven't had as much free time. I've been more of a hoarder and less of a modeler. So <laughs> that's true with a lot of us. <laughs> All right, well, it looks like we're uh, not getting much in the way of questions here. We've got uh, a few people watching, but I think we answered most of everything during the show. Mm, so. Definitely. So we want to – I know, Mr. Marty, you have a you, – you're a working man. You've got a, you got a job to go to in the morning, so we're going we're gonna to go ahead and thank you for your time, and uh, we'd love to have you back on the show at some point. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe some months from now. But uh, as I mentioned, if you're interested, YouTube's got a lot of this. I have to tell you, YouTube's a little crazy in that some of the people are over the top. You know, oh, you yeah. think I have a fair amount here, but this is sort of average for the serious collector. There are people who have 50 by 80 foot basements, like particularly in the Midwest where the basements sprawl, and they have them filled floor to ceiling with uh, a two or three level layout and maybe thousands of pieces of, of, of oh, collectible I'm a, yeah i'm a lego aficionado i'm very familiar with a basement full of massive amounts of stuff <laughs> <laughs> uh, it runs in our family i have a uh, nephew who uh collects the lego sets and he gets at least two of everything but he uh he is still mad at his mother he hardly talks to her because when he went to college she gave away all his Legos from childhood. And he had them in Tupperware containers. He had all the booklets sealed in plastic bags. He had everything in pretty good shape. So, oh, that, uh, he, yeah, yeah. But he went into. Uh, he has a good job, so he actually uh, has reconstructed his collection plush. You know. Yeah, I had a guy who uh, I worked with who his mother uh, threw away his '80s Transformers, or rather, gave them away. And he came back for him, and he's like, "Mom, you know how I many these much these things are worth?" And he's like, "Wait, what do you mean you gave them away?" <laughs> oh, hold on, I think well, we people... got one more question. Uh, do you ever get any dioramas made for like scenery and buildings around the track? Yeah, I actually do. It's kind of funny. I've had some strange things, but uh, trying to think of everything that fits that well. This is one of the things that's a little bit strange that I'm still trying to figure out how to work in. My son finished some architecture school. And he has oh, these wow. sort of odd models. And uh, so I'm trying to figure out, how, I may paint the bases on them, but he had to realistically show the uh, elevations, like the way the land works around models and such. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not quite the same as uh, dioramas, but there are, as I mentioned, there are some people who will build just a two-by-three-foot piece that only has, like, two tracks running through it, and that'll be their project for a year to make a diorama of like a station with like a steam engine coming in then they may incorporate into a layout or they may not so okay. it's uh, it's interesting i want to mention one last thing the n-gauge trains which are a little bit bigger than the z-gauge this is the track that they run on it's uh it's a still a pretty good modeling track there is a particular group of people they call them the uh uh the, they're called the uh, n-track clubs they do a standard layout that's only like a big diorama. They each do like a two by four foot section. 
and that fits in anyone's car if you think two by four feet uh-huh. and they have three three rails three tracks that run side by side and they have to be in the same location on every one of them then they can run switches off of them they can do any kind of uh they could do a mine on there they could do a logging operation they could do a small city but they have to be able to hook up to the next one exactly okay so three in and three out at the same point but what happens is they all use the same height legs i don't remember what it is it's like 44 inches or so and they can bring two or three of these to a meeting with 20 other people and they'll have a couple curve sections they will set up like a whole high school gym with one layout wow and they have they have standard snap connectors underneath so what they'll do is they'll each build two or three dioramas and they'll connect to the other persons and that's kind of neat because what you end up is what you end up with very different skills a different approach but you'll have a layout then that is in real life might have a running track that's as long as 1200 feet or so but in scale is like 10 miles uh-huh. so then they can run a train that literally will take uh, a half hour to go around the loop wow and that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah cool. but they they build modules and they hook them up together they they each build two or three modules and uh, somebody's responsible for making sure the corners are covered sure eddie it's nice nice to meet you all okay all right. you guys take care all right, well, thank and, you uh, very much, Mr. Your... Marty. Sure. Zach, uh, so Rainer and uh, Seth know how to get a hold of me if there's any further questions that, that you want me to answer for your, uh, for your, you know, your online forums or such. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So anybody listening, if you have any serious questions, uh, DM me, me or Seth. We'll, we'll get them to Marty and we'll, we'll get you answered. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Mr. Yeah, Marty. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for joining us. This was incredible. Yeah, you are okay. a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> Everybody stay safe so we all get immunized. Okay. Oh, Bye yeah. Bye bye. All right. Let's see here. We got a few more things to move through here. All right. Well, this is this is kind of going to be our midpoint of the show, but I think we've, we're running out of time. <laughs> um, we, 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 we just had so much to cover here, but let me go ahead and get our sponsor, Chip Tag. We want to thank our friends over at Watto Scrapyard for sponsoring this week's episode of Collecting Weekly. You find them on Instagram, Watto Scrapyard, and on Facebook and eBay as well. They make excellent 3D parts, hard to come by for the Kenner and Hasbro vehicles, as well as resin printed head sculpts of dozens of different characters in the Star Wars universe. If you see a character you don't like on their Instagram, send a message and they will get it designed and printed for a reasonable fee. As we covered earlier, great guy. He may not have as much time now since he's been breaking <laughs> the model railroading. <laughs> Sorry about that. But no, no, he, yeah. he, he, he does amazing work. You will not be disappointed. You will not yeah. be disappointed at all. And actually, I need to talk to him after the show because we have a little project in the works. Ooh. Yes. But for now, Seth, it is time for your version of the seg- oh, segment of the show. As I yes, say. sneakers of the show. This actually kind of lines up directly with, uh, not super directly, but kind of close to what Wado's doing. So if we want to flip out of those sneakers, these are actually Adidas's Alpha Edge 4D uh, wow. Star Wars edition. They're called 4D because they use what they call 4D printing. Um, it's not really like 3D printing, but they uh, inject light through basically a plastic resin, and that's where you get that unique uh, sole design. So it's actually see-through almost completely through the sole because light creates that whole pattern, and then they pull it out and put it on a shoe. Okay. And uh, these are the Star Wars edition, so it actually has, like, the Death Star on it. It says, you know, that's no moon, uh, the power of the dark side. So it's just kind of a cool shoe. Now, I have to ask you, what does a pair of these cost you? They actually cost almost $300. Mm. Expensive shoe? Although Mm -hmm. that's not really compared to some of the other ones. (laughs) (laughs) Way more than my sneaker budget. (laughs) I just had to have them because, you know, they're a cool shoe. They're actually one of the few pairs that I bought in-store. A lot of my shoes don't ever make it into a traditional shoe store because they're so rare. These are kind of more of a wider release. So Nice, nice. All right. Well, you had mentioned earlier to me that uh, one of your sneaker stores... I started selling Legos. Mm-hmm. So StockX is probably like the main repository if you're going to buy sh- 
shoes and they've actually uh, expanded from shoes into kind of the natural progression i think uh purses and then from there they started doing some collectibles mostly vinyl figures and now they're going into lego and so i don't know how to feel about this because a lot of it you see is like sometimes shoe prices will hit crazy high and i hope that that's not going to be the same thing with these more retired lego sets but still maybe it'll be you know a wider repository to find some of these sets that are harder to find well i see some of these are more still current sets but mm. the prices are a little high like the millennium falcon there's 800 if you buy it straight from lego mm -hmm. so i mean it's kind of but you know if you if you're if you're trying to find a hard to find set and don't mind paying a little extra more i can see how this would be very handy because not a lot of people check this i would imagine yeah and the, the neat thing about them is StockX verifies everything that comes through their site so they you actually ship it directly to them they verify that it is authentic before they ship it to you so oh, if you wow. are ponying up 900 dollars for the millennium falcon you know you're getting the legit millennium falcon set from lego and not from some knockoff i don't know if it exists in the knockoff form but i'm sure it does oh there's there's leaping there's star yeah. star wars or uh, Star, uh, the, what's it called? Space Wars or whatever. There's there's tons of knockoffs in the mm -hmm. Lego world. Believe me, it, it's gotten to the point where it's ridiculous. Yeah, so you will actually be getting the legit set. They will verify that it's the real set before they ever ship it to you. So that is handy. That is handy because mm -hmm. I know there are a lot of scammers out there in the Lego world. Mm -hmm. And the other neat thing is it really kind of functions like a uh, like almost like a stock market per se. So you can look at the last sale price for whatever set you're looking at. And so it might go up by 15, 20%, or it might go down by 15 per, or 20%, depending on what somebody was willing to pay for it. So you can either buy it outright at the asking price, or you can put in a bid and hope that somebody will take your lower bid. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. That, I'll keep this in mind for when I'm looking for retired sets, because usually I'm stuck trolling offer up in Facebook marketplace waiting for some mom to sell <laughs> well, this, will, stuff. <laughs> this will definitely I think be a good uh, a good site to check out in the future I kind of perused through it and there's not a whole lot on there now but I mean they literally just announced this like Tuesday morning so it's been pretty slow for having people actually put Lego sets on there alright well we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show here uh, we'll get started with our Patreon we would like to thank our Patreons here, Ben Porter, Sean Fear, Ian CB. Thank God I didn't screw that up that time. <laughs> Ryan Mendez, Eric Marcel, Quinn Aguirre, Leo Hernandez. I'm never going to say Lemur again. Please. No, no, no. We're not going to do that. King Louie, Mark Pearson, Paul Schreiber. I, I, I'm sorry if I butchered that. Dan Lee, Deanie Martin, Stephen Critt. Jason Nelson, Big Fern, King Zachary, Caesar McQuarr, Marroquin, Eddie Mendez. It's always humorous when I do these because I'll, I'm so bad at pronouncing stuff. So I apologize, everybody. Eric Ruiz, Mario Cortez, Stephen Pershaw, Seen uh, Yahtzee. Uh, how is that pronounced? <laughs> Take a while. Yeah, I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm that one... <laughs> say that's Sean Yutzee. Scott Bradley, Jesse Contreras, Stephen Marie Stanley, Lord Voldatort, and oh, Eddie, yeah. Eddie Manzanares? I, I'm not even going to begin to try that. I'm sorry. Okay, I know y'all well, have paid to get your name shut up. I'm yeah. sorry. We're probably terrible. <laughs> we, we, we are we are the, we are the uh, terrible podcast on this network. We admit it. <laughs> we, we do well until this part. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. We, uh, will, we derail, as you might say. Yeah, we, we get tired and the brain cells start dying, and that's just it. Uh, February Patreon benefits In and Outs of Collecting Magnet, our new show, In and Outs of Collecting. Actually, they're going to record right after us tonight. So if you're listening to us, stick around because they're going to be recording here at about 9 o'clock Pacific, if I'm not mistaken. 
But you get an in and out of collecting sticker magnet. You also get the Gooch Grease, Gooch Grease sticker crispy and whatever tears. I just realized I said Gooch. <laughs> See what I mean? We just derail at this yeah. point. Gooch Grease, Gooch Grease, whatever. Hit something. All right, our Patreon benefit: Sweet Angel, five dollars per month. Uh, that will give us exclusive. That will give you exclusive slag from the Collecting Weekly Network. Five dollars a month includes a sticker straight, straight to your door, as well as access to all. Ox After Dark. If you never listen to Ox After Dark, it is a hoot. It is ten times funnier than us right now. Trust me, you don't want to miss it. We also have Crispy, which is the $15 tier. This tier includes an official certified Crispy certificate on first pledge. Assistance with the figure fixes by Zachary. Message him beforehand to confirm it's possible. And all the benefits of each of the previous tiers. What a guy! Our big tier, $25. Folks, this in this tier get a get a signed collecting weekly live eighteen by twenty four silhouette poster on first pledge doubles of all the stickers we send and one sculpt year painted by Dark Side Customs after three months all the benefits of the previous tiers. Let me tell you, Dark Side Customs does amazing work. Like if you got a new Watto scrapyard head sculpt and you're looking for the best guy to paint it. Ian's your guy. He, he does amazing work. He's done even if you want to get something else painted that you know you're like, oh, I'm not super happy with the paint job on this figure. He will knock it out of the park. He does phenomenal work. He's painted several of mine, and I'm still waiting on a couple from him. So with it, it's just it's an amazing it's an amazing uh, amazing service he offers. All right. We have a little P.O. box here, Collecting Weekly 5586, uh, 5886, excuse me. Villa Road, Suite 102, box number 292 at San Antonio, Texas. Zip code is 78249. Just check out our other shows. We have a wealth of shows at this point. We have Small Talk, Collecting Weekly, of course, the mainstay, the bread and butter, the meat and potatoes, Collecting Weekly. You have OFAC, the classy... Uh, Classy Brits, including uh, Ian from Dark Side Customs. You have Axion, which is our little uh, little auction type deal. <laughs> we have uh, the joy of hobbying, collecting rarities, uh, of course. We have Creeps or Us. We have collecting comics after dark and the new show, The In and Outs. Please check us out. It would help us a lot, and you you will not find a better podcast network, in my opinion. Check us out on Facebook, Collecting Weekly Auxiliary. We are, we have a great community there. We are happy to answer any questions you have, anything you want to, you know, share with us. It's it's just a great community altogether. I really can't say enough enough good about it. Final thoughts, Seth. I uh, there was a lot uh, he covered, um, and honestly. I think uh, we need to get him back on the show at some point to cover more. But Definitely. There was so much that he just, I mean, he probably was our most knowledgeable guest to date, I think, really. I believe. Zachary, you got to step the bar up, man. <laughs> We're going to possibly be getting you on next show. You gotta step the bar up, because um, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, that I don't, I don't know who's gonna top that. That was wow. That was impressive. That was I really mean, impressive. I feel like uh, we opened an encyclopedia and it just started reading to us about this whole <laughs> hobby that I had honestly had no idea about. So, so little known fact: uh, Mr. Marty Odellini <laughs> trained my dad uh, when he was in the army medical field. So yeah, he is he's basically an encyclopedia. <laughs> Yeah, wow. That's so, incredible. And I, I mean, seems like he's a busy guy with his hobby, so I can't imagine how he would have time for anything else, but obviously he does. So holy crap. I mean, he yeah. honestly must be another one of those people that's working on a 26-hour day. I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'll be honest with you, I've I've been over to his house. We used to host uh he used to host Easter get together and I wish I could have talked a little bit about it, but there was just so much to cover in such a little short time. But um, he used to own llamas out on his house, and he would get Easter, he would do an Easter egg hunt, and sometimes there'd always be the poor schmuck who's like, oh, let me check the llama pen, and then they get spit on. <laughs> that was me once, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it only takes once. But, uh, oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, he was he was a great guest. I hope to have him back at some point. But, yeah, that um, would be awesome. That would just be awesome, yeah. All right, well... Final thoughts, everybody. I think we're done. Yep. Uh, all right. Well, I'm I'm Rainer.
I'm Seth. Thank you all for joining us. And uh, stay rare, stay golden, everybody. And we will catch you next time.